yeah, if you uh, would take your Bible and don't turn to Romans, um, turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, it's good to finally be back in, in, uh, in the new year and to get in God's Word with you. Uh, we were scheduled to be in Romans this morning, but uh, I was with a team in Kenya for uh, over a week the past few days, and, um, and then I was speaking at our youth group's D Now uh, this weekend twice yesterday, so I just needed a bit more time to get ready for Romans 7. So, Lord willing... We're in Romans 7 next Sunday. But this morning, I thought we'd look at a different passage, one that I hope is, is uh, strategic timing for us. Like Katie said uh, during the announcements, this week is an important week in the life of our church. It's, today kicks off prayer week. Uh, if you've been at Lakeview for any length of time, you'll, you'll remember that the, the, right around the first of the year, the, one of the first few, two or three weeks of every year, we devote an entire week to prayer. Uh, praying for the upcoming year, praying for our church, praying for the nations. Uh, it's, it starts tonight. It, it, it'll be at uh, you know, 6 o'clock every night this week. And, uh, and there's like a different, different theme uh, every night to direct our prayers. It's a really, it's a really cool week. Uh, it's, it's a really cool week, similar in my uh, mind to like Missions Festival week every year, in the sense that if you, if you on later in the year, if you come to Missions Festival, all the meals and everything, it, you, it tends to be the same group of people that comes every week, every day, and you end up spending this entire week with the same group of people. And, it, and you just, man, you, you might get close to somebody you wouldn't expect to have. And prayer week is the same. We're in the sanctuary, and, and sometimes we group up together in different groups to pray. And you might pray with somebody you are meeting for the first time, but it's just a cool time. But um, I encourage you, like Katie said, to be here as much as you can, 6 o'clock each night. Um, I encourage your missional community groups to make that hour of prayer like the, the, the meat of your meeting this week. Uh, and, and you can, you can that doesn't have to be like all you do. Your Mishcom can like do that and then go, go, eat, go out to eat or something after it's over, fellowship together, do something afterwards. But let the bulk of your meeting be the, 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 um, the prayer meeting. And the same thing is going to be a Wednesday night CBS. We're going to be... Uh, instead of normal CBS, we're going to be praying with our church family. Um, but that starts tonight. But I thought we would look at a, an important text this morning. It's one of my favorite passages on prayer. It's one that we have looked at before, if you've been here for any length of time. But it's been two or three years since we have. And this is a good one, I think, to keep coming back to again and again. It's just a, a great reminder of the importance of prayer in God's economy. Uh, it's a good passage to come to also, not just because it's prayer week. It's a good passage to come to um, as we come into a new year in general um, and to think about our days coming up in this, this calendar year in this sense that we don't know what's going to happen to us this year. You know, it's a good, it's a good thing. I mean, it's a new year and new beginnings, but, you know, if we think back to the, the previous year or years of our lives and think how many things happened to us in this past year, that I didn't foresee happening. Um, I wasn't prepared for it to happen. And, and we can imagine that the upcoming year is going to be similar. On most days, we're going to feel like we have complete control over our lives. Um, I mean, on most normal days, 
we wear what we want to wear. We eat what we want to eat. We, we know what we need to work on that day, and so we do that. And, 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 and sun comes up, sun, go, sun goes down, and everything went as we planned. And nothing out of the ordinary happened, but that's, that's most days. That's not, that's not going to be every day, though. I don't know what's going to happen in my life or yours this, this year, but I know that there's going to be days in my life and in your life in this coming year when something unexpected happens. Like something, there's going to be days when uh, something unexpected happens that proves that I'm un- unmistakably not in charge of my life. Like I'm not, I'm not the one pulling the strings of what comes in and out of my life. Um, you may already be in a season like that. I don't know. Or if not, this year could bring a season that feels like that. And um, even in normal times, things happen, small things just happen that, that, that I didn't expect or didn't plan for, but sometimes I just have to rearrange my schedule and, and work it out. But sometimes it, it's, it's a bigger deal. Sometimes the unexpected happens and, um, and it, it alters everything in my foreseeable future. Like it, it, it brings with it tremendous stress or confusion or sadness or grief or anger or frustration, and we don't understand why it happened or, or I don't understand how I, need, how I go forward from here. We want to know why it happened. Why is life like that? How should we respond like that in a situation like that? And I do think that this passage this morning shed some important light on it while at the same time teaching us about prayer. All right, so our passage is 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11. And it presents to us Paul's take on a situation that happened in his life that without question he certainly didn't plan on and a situation that I doubt he would ever want to happen again. But as he writes in this passage, it was a situation that gave him an opportunity to learn some important things, specifically to learn three things, something about himself, something about the Lord, and something about prayer. And I want us to see those three things uh, in this passage and pay special attention to that third one about prayer. This is something we need to hear. So let's read our passage, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. I invite you to follow along as I read. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction... That we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. All right, let's pray. Lord, this this passage is, is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative and necessary word it is that we confess our faith in that it your word uh, testifies to itself that it is that proves itself to be that and uh, that is our our confidence Lord Uh, and so we ask as we come to this word uh, Lord that you would give us eyes to see the truth in it you would give us minds to understand it clearly 
you would give us um, hearts to embrace what Paul is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul here, hearts to embrace it and, uh, and, and, and know it in our hearts and then wills to put into practice what it admonishes us to do. And I ask that you would give me the help that I do need this morning to teach and please give us all ears to hear. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you're taking notes, I said there are three very clear truths that this passage has to teach us. And uh, I'm going to give you time to write if you need it. So the first, the first, I'm going to tell you what the three are, then we'll work our way through all three of them. The first truth is going to be this. God uses our circumstances to help us see our dependence on Him. God uses our circumstances to help us see our dependence on Him. That is very clearly stated in this passage and it's confirmed in others. God uses our circumstances to help us see our dependence on Him. The second truth is going to be this. God's past faithfulness, God's past faithfulness is meant to help us trust Him even more in the future. God's past faithfulness is meant to help us trust Him even more in the future. Uh, all the more reason for us to pay careful attention to the ways that God has been faithful to us personally in the past because He never changes. God's past faithfulness is meant to help us trust Him even more in the future. And then the, the, the last truth is going to be this. God has given us prayer for us to show our dependence upon Him. God has given us prayer for us to show our dependence upon Him. Prayer is the primary way that we express to the Lord that we trust Him and that we are actively trusting Him. Prayer, God has given us prayer for us to show our dependence upon Him. This, this, prayer, this passage is as much what we just read and what we're going to study. This passage is as much a reflection on the providence of God over our lives as it is a passage about prayer in response to it. But that's good because having a good, good, good grasp on God's providence over your life is key to a healthy life of prayer, okay? One of my favorite books, by the way, that I want to commend to you on prayer is A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Um, have any of you ever read A Praying Life by Paul Miller? Yeah. It's, uh, it is, um, it's an amazing book, and I like that book on prayer a lot because it is a book on prayer, but it's one that spends almost the entire time just looking at God and the ways of God's providence in our life. Uh, because prayer naturally arises out of how you view God and His ways. All right, so I really commend that book to you. It's a lot like this passage in a way. But I want to see these, these truths in our passage, and let's begin with this one. God uses our circumstances to help us see our dependence on Him. By the way, I'm going to go ahead and warn you, we're going to flip around to different passages this morning, so just get ready for that. Uh, pop your knuckles or something. Um, God uses our circumstances to uh, help us see our dependence on Him. I think this is what we see in verses 8 and 9. Look again at verse 8. This is Paul beginning to recount a, a rather unpleasant situation in his life. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware or ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Whatever... Whatever situation he's describing, just listen to how he talks about it. He describes it as affliction, 
Some other translations may say trouble. Even others say hardship. Take your pick. None of those are very good. In fact, he says it was so bad that he thought he and his companions were going to die. And he says right there in verse 8 that they despaired of life itself. And he's going to reiterate in the, next, in the very next verse, in verse 9, that they felt like they had received the sentence of death. I mean, that's, that's a low point in his life, maybe the lowest, I don't know. But he, told, he tells the Corinthians at the outset of this letter that all of this happened to him when he was in Asia, and he doesn't want them to be unaware of it. This happened to him in Asia. He doesn't give any specifics of what happened to him. I think, he, it seemingly, he, he, he says this happened to him when he was in Asia, assuming that they would know what he was talking about. Um, and so can we know what he's referring to? I believe that he's referring to something that is recorded for us in the book of Acts. And so... Uh, I think he's talking about some things that happened to him in different cities in Asia in the book of Acts. So hold your place uh, here and flip over to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Um, This is when he was in Asia, in different cities in Asia. Acts chapter 19 tells us about his time in Ephesus. Hopefully these are all familiar passages to you. I, I love the book of Acts. But Acts chapter 19, and when you get there... I'm going to read verses uh, 21 to 34. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. So he's on his way to Jerusalem, okay? Saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. We're talking about in in Ephesus, which is in Asia. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought uh, no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands, like ours, are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be, may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in 
confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, um, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice. Now, fortunately, that, that situation passed, um, and Paul got out of there, but he made some enemies in, that, in, in the process of that, that event right there. The people of, of Ephesus were, were, were shouting down Paul for preaching. Um, that's not anything new today. It still happens. Uh, but note particularly verse 33 where a Jew named Alexander spoke up in the middle of the commotion, probably trying to disassociate him, the Jews from the Christians. Hey, don't be mad at us. We're not Christians. But in verse 34, it just says they shouted him down too. So that tells you that not only did he have um, the Ephesians, people in Asia, mad at him, uh, and, and he had trouble among the pagans, those who made the, the pagan gods, but now he had Jews mad at him too, probably Alexander among them, that were going to cause more trouble for him in the future. We know that that's the case because two chapters later, if you'll flip over to chapter 21, uh, it happens. In, in Acts 21, he's left Asia now, and now he's in Jerusalem. And while he's there, while he's there, look at what happens beginning in verse 27. Now he's in Jerusalem. He says, when the seven days were almost completed, who's there? The Jews from Asia. Probably Alexander was among them. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone against the people, teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, I'll just uh, stop right there. <laughs> we'll stop in the middle of the sentence. As they were seeking to kill him. Uh, we'll come back to that in just a minute. I can honestly say I've never been in a situation like that. Uh, I, I, I've, it's hard for me to imagine putting myself in that situation. I mean, a, a mob being stirred up, not just once, but twice. I mean, how scary would that have been in, in, in Ephesus when it said, when the crowd got, got all riled up and gathered together in, in Ephesus, some were saying this and some were saying that, and a lot of them didn't, didn't even have any idea why they had come together. Can you imagine how dangerous and dangerously volatile a crowd could be when they're all stirred up mad, but they're not even really no, they're just, it's just a, it's, it's a chaotic mess. And then you come to Jerusalem and the Jews are now stirring up uh, everything and they are, they have seized him and dragged him and seeking to kill him. And I mean, that had to have been absolutely terrifying. And it's easy to imagine that Paul literally in that moment thought, I'm going to die. 
Like, my friends are going to die, I'm going to die. And I think that this is exactly the episode that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And you can turn back there now. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And as you turn back to it, uh, keep in mind, keep, keep Acts 21 marked, because we're going to come back to it in just a second. Um, but if you look again at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll see how Paul reacted and, and what he learned from all of it. There in verse 8, he tells them about those hardships that we just read about where he thought he and his friends were going to die. But then you come to verse 9 and he says, Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. It was reinforced to Paul that God, he, had, he didn't forget in that chaotic moment, God was there. God had brought him into that moment through those difficult things ultimately to help him rely on God, not on himself. So sometimes hardship is the only thing, I know myself, sometimes hardship is the only thing that, that makes me come to that place in my life. Sadly, sad to say. Um, I, I know that's true. I mean, but what do we read in the, in, the, in the Proverbs? Proverbs says, give me, Proverbs verse, chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? That's so true. It's, if I'm speaking from personal experience, it's when, I'm, it's when I'm comfortable that I tend to forget about God altogether. Or, or, or not just forget about God. We certainly, I certainly lose my sense of how uh, desperately I am in need and depend on Him. Right? It's not that our, our, our desperation is ever actually, in fact, less, but the intensity of my awareness of it is. And certainly it weakens in good times, and God brings the difficult times in my life for my good. God has a purpose in every hardship, and it's not that I get angry or I get discouraged, but it's, that, it's, it's that, so that my hope would shift off earthly things, or even if it's just my own self-sufficiency. Uh, back onto the Lord. Uh, God's main purpose in all adversity is to make us stop trusting in ourselves or in anyone else. That is an idea that is all through the Bible, um, especially the Old Testament. Jeremiah seventeen five: Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Psalm 146, 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Psalm 33, 16 to 18. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A war horse is a false hope of salvation. And by, it, by its great might it cannot save. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. Yeah, far too often in my own life. It's only when things are hard that I really feel what is actually true all the time, right? That I'm absolutely dependent upon God and His mercy and His provision. Whether I feel it or not, it's, it's a good thing that I feel that, right? Um, Tim Keller said, you don't realize that Jesus is all you have or all you need until you realize that Jesus is all you have. And, and God brings us into circumstances to make us feel that keenly, right? But that brings us to the second truth he, 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 he points out in this passage, which is God's past faithfulness is meant to help us trust him even more in the future. This is what happened with Paul. Look at what he says in verse 10. 
He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. And notice the progression of his thought there. He delivered us, that's past tense, and He will deliver us, that's future tense. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again, that's future tense. That's a pattern of thought we see all the time in the writings of Paul. In the last letter of Paul's earthly life, 2 Timothy, he made a similar statement. In 2 Timothy 4.15, Paul talked about someone who was really giving him a hard time. That's verse 15. Then in verse 16, he says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me. Nobody came to help him with this person who was giving him trouble. But he says in verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So even though nobody else came to help, the Lord stood by him and helped him. That's verse 17. Verse 18 says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You see the progression of thought there. He said, I needed help. Nobody helped me. The Lord helped me. And because he helped me, I know he will help me in the future. That's what he says in 2 Timothy. That's the thought we see in verse 10. The Lord brings us into circumstances that bring us to realize our need for Him, and we look to Him for help, and when we do look for him, to Him for help, He helps us, and we come to trust Him even more in the future. What gave Paul the confidence in this? According to verse 10, what gave Paul the confidence that God would be there for him in the future? God had been there for him in the past. I'm not, I'm not saying, and Paul's not saying, that it's, that it's ever easy to walk by faith. I mean, he's the one that said, I felt like I had the sentence of death. That's not easy. But it's easier to do it when you've had to do it before. And we've seen God be faithful in the past. But the question that's pertinent for what we're talking about here at the beginning of prayer week is, how did God deliver Paul from that deadly peril? I mean, we kind of left it hanging. Uh, we saw, the, we saw the, the circumstance that he was in in Ephesus in chapter 19, in Jerusalem in chapter 21, and we stopped in the middle of a sentence that said, as they were seeking to kill him, and that's where we stopped it. And the next thing we know, he's writing the Corinthians saying, man, we really thought we were going to die. How did he get out of it? How did he get out of it? Well, I told you to keep your... your uh, finger on Acts 21, so go back to there. By the time, by the time that all of that happened in Jerusalem that we just read about, remember how they stirred him up and they seized him and they were trying to kill him, they thought they brought, he brought that Ephesian into the temple and all that, the one that we just read in Acts 21. Before all of that happened, Paul had already written his letter to the Romans Okay? Paul had already written his letter to the Romans. And you know how at the end of Paul's letters, in most of his letters, at the end of them, that's the part we just skim in our Bible reading plan where he's saying, say hey to this guy and that guy. Um, and he just says a few odd and end things. Well, sometimes it's, it's good to just pay careful attention to what he's saying in that part. Because at the end of Romans, in Romans 15, you don't have to turn here, but you can just listen to me read it. At the end of Paul, at Romans 15... Uh, this is what, he, he, he asks them to pray for something, okay? And just listen very carefully to what he asks the Romans to pray. And again, he wrote this before the events of Acts 21. He said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers 
to God on my behalf. That's another way of saying, pray for me, okay? What does he want them to pray? That one, he wants to pray two things. One, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. That's one. And two, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Okay? Pray for me, he says to the Romans. Pray for my time in Judea. Where, what's, what's in Judea? Jerusalem. Okay? Pray for me while I'm in Jerusalem and pray two things in particular. One, that I would be delivered from the unbelievers. And two, that, that uh, the, the, the believers there would be encouraged by me. Right? Would welcome me and, and, and be encouraged by me. So Paul had already asked the Romans to be praying for what he experienced there in Acts 21. How about that? So as we go back to Acts 21, and, uh, and, and, and we're going to see how God answered these two requests. The first, we first see that he answered the second request, which was that the, the, the believers there in Jerusalem, would be, he would be welcomed by the church there. Uh, and even though there were complainers, and this was, uh, on the whole, a, a, a terrible time in Jerusalem, he was well-received by the church. Look again at verse 17 in, 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 uh, in Acts 21. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And when Paul told them about his missionary journeys, it says in verse 20, they glorified God. Wow. He asked the Romans, would you please pray that that would happen? When I go there, and it did. But what about that first prayer request? The one he says, would you pray that I would be delivered from the unbelievers when I get to Jerusalem? Hmm, I think that one's answered here too. Um, As they were mobbing Paul and beating him, and in verse 31, they were seeking to kill him. Notice carefully verses 31 and 32. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Okay, word came to the Roman guards, and what was their response? They ran. They ran to Jerusalem. And when they saw the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Because a church 1,300 miles away in Rome were praying for them, some Roman soldiers felt it necessary. Some Roman soldiers felt it necessary to go even tell their superiors that there's trouble in Jerusalem. And then when they found out about it, these soldiers didn't walk. They ran to see about it. They didn't typically run for that. And Paul was delivered from the attackers, and, 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 and uh, he was taken away from them by the authorities. In other words, going to jail was his deliverance. But actually, the trouble wasn't over yet, so flip over to Acts 23. Here, Paul is in jail, still in jail. And when you get to Acts 23, look at verse 12. When it was 
day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul, for heaven's sake. So they're still trying to kill him. They're saying, we're not going to eat or drink anything until we do. This is stupid. But look what happens. Look in verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister, in other words, Paul's nephew, Paul's nephew heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul of all the people who could overhear their plan. His own nephew overheard it, and he went and told Paul. And Paul then was able to go tell the authorities about their plot, and because a church 1,300 miles away in Rome were praying for exactly this, they actually believed Paul that the Jews were plotting something. They could have easily just said, you're paranoid. And look, look at what the Lord provided to Paul in answer to the Romans' prayers in verses 23 and 24. He called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. I mean, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. I think he's going to get there okay. And you, and, you, and you go back to 2 Corinthians 1, and the bottom line is this. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, that God delivered him from a deadly peril, well, first of all, he really did. But he understood that God did that. Paul understood that God did that in answer to, to prayer that people were making on his behalf in Rome. This has to be in the back of his mind now when he's writing to the Corinthians. At the end of our passage brings us to our, our final point, which is that God has given us prayer to show our dependence upon him. Look again at verse 11. I'm in 1 Corinthians. That's not going to sound right. He says in verse 11, You also must help us by prayer. He had, seen it, he had seen it happen with the Romans, and now he's telling us, telling the, the, the Corinthians, You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. He just said in, in verse 10, On him we have set our hope. And now in verse 11, you also must help us by prayer. You put those two things together and you see that prayer is how we show our hope in God. It's how we show that we're trusting in Him. Actively show God we're trusting in Him. That is so indisputably true. It's almost, a, 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 at least for me, it's almost a, an in, it's a reflexive inclination, instinctive inclination for me in my own life, I've seen it, that whenever I'm in a really difficult time or, or coming up on some big event, I've prayed more. I just do. I've prayed harder because in those moments, I'm very aware of how inadequate I am. And I need God's help and His blessing. But the reverse is sadly too often true. When things are going well, I don't tend to pray as much or as fervently because I don't feel my need for God as keenly, even though it's no less true. Oswald Chambers wrote a famous devotional book, My Upmost for His Highest. It's a good book. And he said in that book, we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. Like Those are words I need to remember. 
And, and, that, that, and, and what is true for me is true for you, is true for the whole church. It's why it's good that Lakeview has a, as a whole church has a prayer week to begin every, uh, every year and has a, has a prayer meeting every Wednesday night where they actually pray for an hour. You can tell how much a church is trusting the Lord to see by looking at its, at, at, at its prayer ministries. Tr- churches can trust in all kinds of things. They can trust in their pastor, how, 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 how uh, dynamic a, a preacher or speaker their pastor is, or uh, their music, or their building, or their lights, or their money, or all sorts of things a church can put trust in. But if we really, really knew that our church or any church, um, for that matter, uh, would cease to be without God's blessing and without God's help and favor. We would be a praying church, and this coming week would be a good time to devote ourselves to that. Let me give you one last thought from this passage here. Paul's motivation in asking them is not just, it's not just because it will help him in his trouble, but look carefully at the motivation he gives in verse 11. You must help us by your prayers. Um, so that many will give thanks on behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. So that many will give thanks. So that God will be glorified by more people giving thanks to him when he answers the prayers. So God graciously brings us into circumstances uh, to make us realize how much we need him. And we show him how much we trust him through prayer. But we also know that the more we see him answer our prayers, the more we will trust him in the future. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this this word. It's a word that we have seen before, but Lord, it's one that I need to hear again and again and again. Lord, you've been good. You've been so good to us. And uh, I pray that you would use this passage to help us um, feel keenly our dependence upon you and our need for you and our trust in you all the time when times are good, Lord, so that we are trained by that uh, not to flinch when times are bad. So, Lord, I, I, I pray that we would uh, remember this word, that it would spur us on to prayer in order to demonstrate that to you. I ask, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.